Hello, welcome to Healing Out Loud with me, your host, Jackie Shea. This is a place to relate to the darkest days and be inspired by ultimate triumph. Each week, I interview a brave guest who has extensive experience with illness and or wellness, and hopefully we will leave you inspired to warrior on, highly informed about something new, and connected to a tribe of amazing humans. Because the only way out is through, but it helps to have a tribe walking with you. Hi friends, I am so excited for another episode of Healing Out Loud. Welcome back. Did you get a chance to check out last week's episode with Kimberly Chambers? It's truly amazing, especially for the new year. I've gotten amazing feedback about how much inspiration people have experienced and I would just love for you to feel that too. Go check it out now. And while you're at it, consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing my podcast on iTunes or any other platform. That is a simple way to support this show if you love the content. I deeply appreciate everyone who reviews and subscribes and writes to me all the time. You can also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash healing out loud, where for a small monthly donation, you get some free extra stuff. If you want even more free content from me. I love giving away free content for those who aren't able to work with me right now, and you can get a lot for free. Simply head to my web- website uh, at JackieShea.com, download your free self-care checklist, and get added to my newsletter email list. Also, considering consider following me on Instagram at Jackie, where I post lots of useful and fun healing tools, just like this week's episode. All right, speaking of... What a very special episode I have for you this week. I got to have a chat with my friend Jason Snell about how to help your sick friends. It may sound straightforward, but lots of people bail when illness gets involved, so this episode just might serve a lot of people out there. But this episode isn't just about illness, guys. It's about true intimacy, leaving codependency behind, what one version of a healthy, peaceful friendship looks and feels like, and it's also deeply about healing past traumas, how we try to work those out with our friends and how that might not serve us. Listen in. Share it with your friends. Share your thoughts with me. Anything at all. All right. I love you. Let's do it. Hi, guys. I have super, a super, super special episode today. I am with a friend, an artist, a musician, and someone who's done a lot of healing work, my dear friend, Jason Snell. Hi, Jason. Hey, hey Jackie. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Um, I have no idea what's going to happen in this conversation. Honestly, it can go in so many different directions. Uh, One of the reasons I wanted Jason to come on is because he's a very dear friend to me and to a couple of other people who have struggled with chronic illness. And he met all of us (laughs) pre-illness and we all got sick from various things at various times. And he is regarded by all of us as an exceptional friend. Um, So I I thought it would be a really uh, informative episode to talk about why, what makes someone a good friend to the sick. And Uh, But to get there, usually a person that compassionate has had to do a lot of their own healing and or experienced a lot of their own trauma. So there's that layer of discussion here too. And honestly, I'm I'm scared to have this conversation um, because one of the things that originally connected Jason and I about 12 years ago was uh, our childhood and family trauma. And, um, that's where my heart, you know, really, really breaks. And I don't talk too openly about growing up in an alcoholic home on here, but I might today. So, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm scared. Um, (laughs) and, uh, I think it's awesome. I, I mean, here's what's awesome. And Jason, you, uh, let me know what you think of this, but sure. we we bonded over trauma, right? A term called like trauma bonding. <laughs> exactly. And and today neither of us do that with people because neither of us are are stuck in our trauma stories. <laughs> but it's probably a really helpful thing for listeners to hear and see if they're doing. So I want to talk a little bit about about trauma bonding and enmeshment versus yeah. versus being a good friend because they're so right. 
different. And I think one of the things I notice with with my clients and with people in the world is that they they really confuse the two, especially when they're when they're sick. Right. So so what what is your experience of those things and how they how they differ? Well, I we're I'm sure we'll get into our past, so um, let's dive in. Um, but we, we we definitely did connect initially through trauma bonding. And I think a big difference in it was that I needed you to be okay for me to be okay. And that's the difference between trauma bonding and being a friend. So now, you know, when you went through your Lyme and your illness – and whenever you get sick now, I'm still okay when you're doing poorly. And so there's a dependency there. I guess that would be the easiest way to describe codependency is my well-being is invested in your well-being. And then breaking away from codependency is I take care of myself. I focus on my own self-care. I show up as I'm able to, as requested. I, I think that's the other thing with codependency is there's so much predictive um, help of like, oh, I bet Jackie will need this, or oh, I read this great thing in a book. Jackie, you know, needs to um, read this or hear about this. Those thoughts don't come up anymore. I trust that you find, you know, the help you need through your own process, and that when you do need help from me, um, you ask directly. And then there's this. Um, I mean, it's kind of the idea of consent, the idea of uh, permission, but. When I tried to help you without your um, asking, it's kind of an insult to your agency. You know, is this, I was assuming, oh, Jackie doesn't know how to take care of herself. I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And, you know, I mean, we were much younger and we didn't know how to take care of ourselves. So mm-hmm. it, it may have been somewhat um, accurate, but it wasn't, it wasn't my, like anytime people have done that to me, it just, I bristle at it. Because if I'm not asking for that help, um, the inherent message is you don't know what you're doing with yourself. And that's insulting, I think, to anyone. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because when I was getting really, really sick, actually, we lived together for a little while. And um, one of the things you you said to me when you had first uh, moved in was – was so Jackie, I just want to be super clear. <laughs> um, I'm not going to assume that you need anything from me. <laughs> oh my god, I said that. Unless you directly ask for it. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's... And and I was like, you know, and this was during the phase where I like had a lot of trouble walking up the stairs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like and 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 I was in this kind of place where I was like, you know, just just like sitting down and unable to get up sometimes. Yep. And yep. and you were just kind of like, yeah. So I'm just gonna like walk around you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna step over you on the stairs. I'm gonna step over you. Uh, um, you do. <laughs> you, you do you unless you ask for something that you need. And I was like, yeah. okay. <laughs> was that helpful? It was, you know, um, it, it was, and it's something really amazing about being sick. It's like, there's so much opportunity to feel like a victim and, yeah. and be a victim that like any, and this is again, something I work on with people I work with all the time, but there's any opportunity that someone, anytime someone gives us an opportunity to step into our power, yeah. um, and anytime we give that opportunity to ourselves, I think is a really, really big uh, deal. You know, yeah. there's Claire Wineland is a is a she actually just recently passed, but she was a cystic fibrosis. Uh, she was living with that and, and dying with that, and really, really young. She died at 21, and um, and she talked a lot about how like when you're a sick person, you hear all the time like I'm so sorry, that must be so hard. <laughs> And like what that does to your to your conscious, like to your to your being, just to constantly be fed like pity. Yep. Um. Yeah. And so I think I think it did help, and it also helped. I think the 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 fine line you just walked so well was like being so loving and 
being like detached. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and and what you're saying is that when when we were in a more sort of toxic, I guess, or younger version Young. of our relationship, it was a younger version. You know, yeah. it was. You say you needed me to be okay for you to be okay, and I get that. But in a sense, I actually, when I was in that state with people, I needed people to not be okay for me to be okay. Um, Sure. Because yeah, I mean that. I think that that's the immediate symptom, but I think the end goal for me was to have a mutual resolution and to get close through that process. Right. But yes, initially I, I had to find people with a problem, so I, I relate entirely. Right. Right. Like I need people to have problems, and then I need us to like talk about those problems, and then <laughs> and yeah, like we are looking. We were both actually deeply searching for a resolution. Um, so yeah, talk to me. Given that background, that's exactly why I needed to say something so crystal clear, you know, when I moved in, because I knew my tendency was to want to help you and to show my love through help. Uh, and so I just knew that I would be anticipating and trying to take care of you in every possible way. And so I, was saying that to you, but I was also saying that to myself to set up a rule of like, if I see her really sick, not to always be checking in because, you know, at certain times it'd be daily or hourly. Right. And instead, just to make it clear of like, okay, she can ask. Otherwise, I won't be able to function because in many ways, when I open up that door, how do I close it? You know, if I start setting up this pattern of, okay, I check in with her each time I see her or once an hour, or at what point do I stop playing, you know, um, caretaker? Mm-hmm. Because that role, once I'm in it, can be quite hard to get out of, you know. And so, um, and that was something I was just used to, you know, in our conversations, you know, when we first met about our dads was, okay, first of all, there was this real, um, I would say relief or uh, sense of comfort of being able to talk to someone who understood what I was going through. And, and that itself is, is a phenomenal thing. Um, and what were, and what were you going through, Jason? So, uh, my dad is also an addict. Um, he's a prescription pill addict and a sex addict. And, um, at the time I was just desperately trying to, um, fix him, get him better. I was, you know, dragging him into therapy sessions. I was buying books for him. I was um, having talks with him. I was trying to set boundaries, trying to create him into uh, the dad I, I wanted rather than the dad I had. And um, just really went down the rabbit hole with it. So when I met you, I was absolutely in the thick of that. And part of the powerlessness I felt over unable being unable to change him, I then could project onto you and be like, okay, I'm going to help you with your dad. Mm. And that you and I could have a conversation in some ways became a emotional substitute for me able to have those conversations with my own father. Mm-hmm. I think in, I saw a version of myself and you as someone who's suffering and wanted a different father to be able to, okay, if I can help heal her, maybe a part of me can be healed as well. So I, I think that's really common with um, caretaking or helping is a bit of projection of, okay, like I'm going to get better if I help this person. And also I think this is just really common when, when people come together in really any capacity is this, I don't know if it's a thrill or this excitement or this um, really good feeling that comes up when people change together at the same time. There's just something really uh, phenomenal about that. And I think it rarely happens because people are often on their own uh, timelines, but I wanted to go through that process with you about our fathers as a way to get close to you. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 a lonely experience too. And I think that there's there's so much value in finding your tribe, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is incredible value in building community. And one of the ways we build community is by finding people who have had like experiences or are on, you know, similar healing trajectories. Like maybe not come from the same past but are doing, you know, deep healing work. Um, and so it's a total blessing that, you know, we found each other and that we had, we could relate on all of these levels. Because as I always say, like one of the most healing things in the world is is the Me Too, you know? Mm-hmm. And I said that before the Me Too movement. So like now it's all caught up in, in, in that. But I just mean in general. <laughs> Yep. The me too. And, and, you know, we got to have that. And I think that was so healing. But, but what we got so lucky on is that both of us did deep healing work. And like today, we're both so much better and we still get to be friends. Whereas I think often one person outgrows another. I agree. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> I, I, this is not to say that it's bad to find people who have had experiences like you and to talk to them about it. Um, it's just That's critical. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's just a different. It's just a different way of connecting than I go about connecting with people today. <laughs> <laughs> like I never, I'm never like I, like I always joke that I used to like walk into a room and be like, "Hi, I'm Jackie. My dad's a crack addict." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I I would often tell. I mean, when I'd first meet someone, or if I went on a first date with someone, I would just start with the war stories. <laughs> yes. Really romantic. <laughs> like, hi, nice to meet you. My dad's a sex addict. Let's talk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let me tell you about my overdoses. The just war whatever. stories. Like, yeah. Right yeah. And like, let's dig into that a little bit. Like, why? Why was there such a need to be so attached to the story? Like, why was my identity so tied up in in that? Do you know why yours was? I think I, I was testing people to see if they could love the darkest parts of me. Hmm. Interesting. And I could you know, get a sense of it pretty early in the conversation if they were completely shocked or if they came back with their own story. And it was this litmus test and it helped me um, know if this is someone that I could share more with. And now I do it a little more gradually. Although, I mean, some of the writings I do online are as exposed as I can get right off the bat. But, um, to do it in a context over like a dinner or a first date or heading into a movie or something, whatever, <laughs> like casual. So it's, it, it would stand out in that it was a really heavy conversation. Um, and I think the other element of it was uh, I conflated into intimacy with intensity. And that would just, the the intensity of a situation, the chemicals that would blast through my brain, that was connecting because a lot of my early intimacy as a young adult was through drug use. And so the way I felt connected with someone is our brains were blasting in the same way at the same time. Mm. And so I carried that over into my um, recovery in terms of uh, that's how you connect is have some sort of intense thing happen. And there's something legitimate there of trauma bonding. You know, if, um, you know, I was in a car wreck in 95 with two friends and I felt close to them in a way that I didn't to other friends because we all went through this intense experience together. Um, so there's, there's a natural dynamic there. It, it can go a bit haywire if the intensity happens with an abuser because then the attachment happens to the person who's hurting me. And so that is, a situation where the system goes a bit haywire. Mm. But, with, but with friends where I could share these stories, and if I got those stories back, it felt like a shortcut to intimacy. 
And a lot of my experiences in New York were that way because, you know, it's a very busy city. There's only so much time in the day to hang out with people. And so it'd be, you know, I'd see someone for 30 minutes over a coffee and it's just like, okay, what's going on? And it's just like, bam, 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 bam. Just all of the crazy things that are going on. Mm. And a big part of my healing actually was leaving New York and going to quieter places. Um, I remember I, when I first went to Berkeley, just decompressing from the experience in New York and finding uh, both there and in my experiences in LA, what's like just to spend a whole day with someone where it wasn't intense. It was just doing simple things, sometimes just running a chore with someone. I mean, that's something I've, you know, whenever you're like, oh, I have to run some chores, uh, you know, do you want to come along? I'm actually delighted because it is so basic. And it's just an experience to uh, an intimacy that's slower. It's more commonplace. And the reason that's more valuable to me is most days are going to look more like that. Where when I build my intimacy based on intense conversations, those intense conversations wear down over time. And then what does the intimacy look like? Whereas if it's built up on these kind of normal experiences and occasionally a bigger unfolding happens or something more vulnerable happens, I want the norm to be every day because I want every day, um, I want to experience that level of closeness without some sort of intense environment um, facilitating it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And you know, what's crazy is that I, I love this, this like, uh, this sort of pseudo intimacy you're talking about, like this short, yeah. this shortcut to intimacy. I so get that. And, and what's crazy, I was thinking, I was like, I felt so much more intimate with you as a friend yeah. when I was sick and we were just being quiet and present like you you'd be quiet but you were so present and it wasn't we weren't talking about a lot of traumas sometimes we were just laughing mm -hmm. but the intimacy was was just real and then like i look back on our younger our younger friendship and i'm like none of that feels intimate to me like it <laughs> like I know that we talked about a lot of like really crazy things, <laughs> but like none of it feels um uh, uh, organic. Like yep. it kind of for me, I totally relate to that. And I today, if I do that, where I like kind of almost force an intense conversation, <laughs> mm -hmm. I get that emotional hangover feeling. Like it fe I it feels icky. Yeah, it feels forced. It feels willful. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of, when I think back to our sharing, it was more of a catharsis. It wasn't that I was connecting with you. It was just I need to tell someone. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And so it was kind of the intimacy that you might feel with a therapist where it's, it's not an actual, I mean, it's cathartic and that I can say, you know, whatever in that environment, but we're not going to go out and have burgers after, you know, the session. It's, you know, it's, it's a very limited type of. Um, yeah. We're yeah. like going home and crying ourselves to sleep. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> feeling real bad, feeling real weird about that darkness we just like rolled around in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Totally. And, and I, I appreciate you sharing about the, um, the experience of just like sitting quietly or, you know, that was something I experienced with our friend Eva. Uh, when she first got her diagnosis of having a tumor on her pituitary gland in her brain, I remember her talking about that. And I just thought, you know, I was coming from my uh, older toolkit, which was what story can I share? What inspirational thing can I say? What's something I can say that's compassionate or wise or whatever. It was, it was all ego based. Um, and with that, it was such an extreme symptom and an extreme ailment that I just thought, I've got nothing. I mean, there's, I've got no experience with this. I have no idea what to say. And that was my first time of really learning to just sit with someone. And so I went over next to her and I just sat down. And that was it. I didn't have to um, – I mean, she doesn't like to be touched, so I didn't like to talk to her. No, I'm saying <laughs> Back near her and just sat there 
and she was crying and, um, I had no words. And that was really important for me to go through in terms of learning how to show up to, for someone. Because a lot of times it's just being there. And that became my template for particularly more extreme situations. Um, yeah. And, yeah. That's so, so, so beautiful and so key. So like something we all do, maybe not all of us, but I did and I watch a lot of people do is this like relating thing, right? Like filtering someone's experience through your own experience and trying to understand by like reliving your own past. And then and then you go to them and you're like – you're like basically comparing what they're going through through something else <laughs> that you've mm-hmm. experienced. And and guess what? Like sick people hate that. Sick people hate that unless you've been sick. <laughs> so right. like one of the reasons that people with chronic illness or pain or injury or anything hate that is because there really is no way to compare it to anything in life unless you've been sick. Right. So, and it feels like it undermines the experience when people do that. I mean, to be fair, I hate when people do that. Like my dad is this abusive addict, you know, and it's a pretty, it's a really extreme case. And when people compare that to, to something that is so not that, (laughs) (laughs) I, I get very, I get, I don't like that either. Like, I'm kind of like, that's not at all what I'm talking about. Like, (laughs) So anyway, so what you're talking about, it's really hard for people. Um, I've noticed it's like it takes a special person to just go to not get their ego at all involved in in their friend's experience and to just sit there and say like, I don't know. I don't have answers, but I'm here for you. Something I'm curious about and, and for you is how similar does the experience need to be for you to feel that it is helpful? Like with your dad? Oh, with my dad. Mm, really similar. It has to be very similar. It has to be it has to be addiction based or narcissism based. Yeah. And um, you know, and it just also really depends on on the place I'm in. Like I'm in this very uh tricky place right now where something has happened with my dad that you know about that has sent me sort of back into this this like I don't know, trauma state, this old state, this like old attachment to the story, this like need, this need for people to see and understand, right? And it's been hard for me for people like uh, to relate unless they're like – unless they're being like, yes, that exact thing happened with my parent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of like – so I don't know. It just depends. And with illness stuff, you know, um, it didn't matter what kind of illness it was. Like as long as a person understood what it was to like – you know, um, have a broken identity and be laid up for an extended period of time. Like I talked to people that helped me that just had neck injuries, you know, but they were like in bed for a year. Right. <laughs> and um, and they struggled with self-worth in that experience like that. So it doesn't need – it didn't need to be exactly the same. But with my dad, I do I do struggle with that when I'm sort of like – um, I don't know, ne- feeling like I need validation or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get it, that, you know, to find someone who's been through the exact same thing is this, that relief of, okay, and that's what I experienced when I first met you, was, okay, this is a person who gets it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to explain it. I don't have to go through the, the shocked looks on their face. Mm-hmm. Like, they get it, and... um but when someone tries, you know, like if, when you were sick, I was, you know, I had mono, I think when I was like five, <laughs> you know, so I don't think that would be a qualifying. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I remember being pretty feverish. <laughs> 
And the laughter is so good, you know? And, like, that's something that's amazing that I actually have written down here in my notes about this conversation is that, like, when we were younger and, like, in this in this stuff, like, we didn't laugh together. We, like, heavy. we were, like, very serious <laughs> all of the time. And, um, you know, we were, like, journaling together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, those emails. I mean, there's just the just emails. Epically long emails. <laughs> I was so happy to get one, and I was like, okay, I can just like. It was, it was kind of like listening to a kind of a goth emo album over and over, and just like getting deeper into like the crying each time. Just like let's just as deep as it can get. Yeah. Totally. Oh, my God. And then, like, you know, and we laughed so much. I didn't do much laughing when I was very sick. But, like, but there was a lightness to – there's been a lightness in our relationship to just about anything big. You know, there's been, like – I'm so secure – and I think this is a really big point too. Like I, I feel so safe in our friendship because I know you take my pain and my life experience seriously. Like I know that you validate it and I know that you acknowledge it. And I, I trust that, you know, if I, if I need you to shift gears and just like not laugh about it, you, you will in a second. But because yep. I feel so secure in that, and because I, I I know that you believe me, I guess that's that's the thing. Like I know that I knew that you believed that I was sick, and I knew that you were worried about me, and I knew that you believe my past and believe me in all of these ways. And with that security, there's just this great freedom. Right. Does that make that sense? Re- it does. It, it, it reminds me of the time I went to one of your appointments with you and um, seeing you navigate all the BS that you had to go through, you know, with a particular doctor. Obviously, I didn't know what it was like for you to go to one alone, but um, I don't know, when I when I think about, you know, how to show up for you, that sometimes it is the question, sometimes it's natural. Sometimes I have to ask, like in that particular instance, I didn't know how much you wanted me to either step in and try to advocate or just be there. And I, I think I, in terms of the actual appointment, I would, I just uh, sat with you. Do you recall that? I do. I just, I mean, I had not, I forgot about it until you said it. And now I know you went to that crazy neurologist with me. Yes. Um, he was so fucking crazy. Oh my God. I, um, I think you actually asked me before the appointment. You said Great. like you said, what do you do you need me to like advocate for you or just and I remember being like, no, I just need you to be here so that after the appointment, when I feel insane from this interaction, like you're with me. <laughs> yeah. So having a fair witness, someone who can see it, and I think that's an important part of anyone who's in a helping role is to explicitly ask how do you want help rather than guessing or trying to anticipate it in the moment? Because those situations can be too complex and they can be changing from day to day. So on a different day, you may have had a different answer. So that's something I've learned to do is just a simple question going into it is, you know, what would you like? Yeah. And as the, and on the other side of that, if you're a listener and you are the person that's unwell, your job is to know what you need and to say it. Like yep. if if you're not asked, um, then then you before the doctor's appointment get to say like, I need you to come to this appointment with me, but I don't need you to say anything. I just need you to be present and witness it and like take me for a tea after. Right. Um, with that said, let's take a break for the weekly challenge. Welcome to our weekly challenge segment where we arm you with new tools each week to kick some self-care butt. As you explore all of these new options presented weekly, my hope is that you will come to collect a number of quick ways to take care of yourself inside and out. You will essentially have your very own and very handy self-care toolkit. Some of the challenges may not work for you and some will seem perfectly tailored to you. 
We are building up your defenses, inspiring your mind, body, and spirit toward total wellness. Keep in mind that the goal is always progress, not perfection. The only rule is that you are never allowed to beat yourself up. Keep me posted on your progress. Stay accountable. It helps. Okay, let's hit this week's challenge. Okay, Jason, what is the challenge for my lovely listeners this week? So the challenge is uh, accepting others. And it's if there's someone in your life that you are struggling to accept something about them, something about their behavior, something about who they are, looking at what is it in you that can't accept them exactly as they are today. And uh, often I found that there's some sort of resistance in me when I want that person to show up for me or take care of me or love me in a very specific way in which they're not. And instead, what can I do to address that need elsewhere? So a big part of me learning to accept anyone in my life, whether they're sick or uh, addicted to something or just not showing up, is the, the pain for me continues as I keep taking needs to them that they can't meet. And when I then learn to either address those needs myself or take it to other people in my community, actually then it frees me up to love the person exactly as they are. It's been a really profound shift. So the challenge is to look at those types of relationships where you're feeling frustrated and like your needs aren't being met. And what can you do to get those needs met elsewhere? Mm-hmm. I think it's so beautiful and particularly with significant others. And I actually just, if I can, just had an experience with this that I'd like to share for an example. Um, I, of course I can. It's my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Like, of course I can. Um, Ian, my, my boyfriend, I I was, he went camping last weekend and I was feeling very jealous, like envious. And, and by the way, like, I was very much invited and actively made the decision not to go. So so I was like, okay, I chose not to go. So what the fuck am I so mad, like envious of and, and mad about? And I started to see that like he he was doing all these – he do, like Ian will play guitar while I do the dishes. You know, like he actively chooses to play and I choose to work. <laughs> even mm-hmm. though I want to play. <laughs> and I was like, I was looking at why I felt angry at him and and sort of, um, I, I did, I just felt resentful. And I was looking at it and I realized that the big, like the root of my resentment in these moments is just that I'm not taking care of my inner child. Like I'm not giving her the kind of play and creativity that she really, really wants. Um, And that's just such a good example of like for me. And then it freed me up completely. And then I was like, oh, I can give that to myself. (laughs) Like I don't need him to like, I don't know, fix that for me. Um, So that, that, that really freed me up. And do you have any examples of late well, I think any sort of example of significant others really um, profound because I can't think of a relationship that has more pressure. You know, you know, I've you know from love songs or rom coms or all sorts of movies. This idea of there's going to be one person, one partner that's going to meet all needs all the time, <laughs> and how ridiculous that would be if someone were to expect that from me. You know, it's just the amount of time it takes to do anything in my life or take care of myself. I mean, I used to want to be that for other people, but it was a fantasy that I could somehow meet someone else's, all their needs. Um, in terms of a specific, I, I can't think of a specific right now because I don't think I've, I've done that in a while. Yeah. Well, that's which is great, which is just fantastic. I mean, in a, there was a relationship I had a few years ago with a woman in Berlin and she seemed to be baffled by how much I accepted her and she was used to people. I was, you know, bringing more of a loaded type of, um, you know, needs and expectations to her. And she was just something, she was a person I accepted across the board and 
it was just this really new experience for me because I was used to having, particularly with romance, having, you know, I should be able to read their mind or they should be able to read my mind, anticipate needs uh, to really get me at all times throughout the day. And so to experience, um, I, I would only respond to the things she actually said. I wouldn't try to, I mean, there were times that she didn't talk to me and I said, is there something you want to talk about? And she said, no. And then continue not to talk to me for like another day or two. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're in a car together. <laughs> in a road so what, what was great about that was I could just focus on, well, what are my needs in this moment? And I thought, well, I'm driving across a beautiful part of the country. Uh, I'm in a car. I'm listening to music I love. Uh, I'm hanging out with someone I enjoy spending time with. Albeit she's not talking to me right now. But I thought, I'm okay. Yeah. And I think in retrospect, it just drove her even more livid that I wasn't you know, babe, what's going on? Like, you got to talk to me, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I asked and she said she didn't want to talk about it. And, you know, like 24, 36 hours later, you know, she brought it up. And I gave her that space and that time to um, sort that out. So I, I haven't fallen into that type of um, needing someone to be a certain way for me to be okay because I've had to practice so much uh, my own self-care mm -hmm. and that's my default now, which is wonderful. I mean, that's a total 180 from growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Just like respecting people enough to have their own experience and to take care of themselves, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that acceptance piece that you're talking about is really profound. Like that you didn't need me to be different when I was sick or to feel differently was so awesome um, and it, gave, it freed up so much space. So I guess the question is, you know, what is some of the work you did to, to, to get there? Right. Well, I had to go through my whole – I had to go through my own experience of healing and a lot of it was um, growing up in a neighborhood that just had a tremendous amount of um, sex abuse. And, you know, there's all sorts of symptoms that were coming up in my adult life in terms of people I was choosing uh, to date, um, things I would experience um, during intimacy, uh, being compulsively driven towards sex or being um, compulsively avoiding it. All sorts of symptoms were coming up. And I got into therapy and started to slowly look at whatever I could remember, which was pretty limited at first and going through this process and having, you know, as a therapist that was really patient with me, um, it gave me a template of, I knew what it was like to be really sensitive at times. Um, you know, I, there were times that even the simplest thing would, uh, trigger me, which it no longer does, but in the time of healing, I was just extra um, vigilant and um, extra sensitive to, to all sorts of things. And so having gone through the healing experience and understanding how tender um, certain periods of time can be, um, I know that when other people ask something simple of like, oh, could you not talk about this or that, just saying yes and not questioning it. And it really helped me learn a lot more about the idea of um, agency and consent in general of just accepting someone at face value instead of trying to um, ask, well, what, what's that about? Or can I change their mind? Or, Oh, if I just need to recontextualize it. Um, but in fact, just, you know, if someone says, I don't, you know, I don't want to talk about red balloons, whatever that is not to judge, um, that there's something about that content at a given time that is too much for someone. Um, because I've been there and, you know, it's likely there'll be other times of healing where I will have really specific, maybe um, illogical things to, to the people around me, but I will have some pretty specific requests for my own healing. Mm. And the great thing is it's not permanent. You know, it's a temporary thing. 
Um, and going through that healing process has just helped me. It, it gave me a different type of empathy. I think before I was pantomiming empathy mm. because it was, and it wasn't, it was a role that I felt I was good at. And it was a role that I felt valuable in because if I could become a helper in someone's life, I'd feel more secure in, in the friendship or in the relationship. And important part of my whole process has been letting go of that helper role to see who still is in my life or not. And I've lost some people and gotten much closer to other people. And that feels like the more natural order of things. And what's really a gift with you is that I could go from a helper role to a friend and that transition, um, our friendship survived that transition in other situations. It, it doesn't, mm-hmm. um, so it, it was my own healing and, um, and you did a lot to heal, you know, like you, a long time. it took a long time and you, you explored a lot of different avenues. Yeah, I did a, a lot of, uh, somatic experiencing. It's a body oriented trauma work. I did some EMDR, uh, not a lot, but I think it's great. I did the EFT tapping. You know, I learned it from a hippie church I was going to at Berkeley and, um, We'll occasionally pull that out when I need. Um, I did cranial sacral therapy. Um, it's working with the fluid around um, the spine up and from the sacrum up to the skull. And those treatments were phenomenal. They would I would walk out of there feeling so balanced. Um, I learned Reiki. I received Reiki, and I was in a period of time where I just needed healing, and I tried everything and. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know what worked and didn't work. I just know that I threw everything at the wall. Something stuck. Something worked. And so I, there's no perfect formula, but um, for anyone who's in that period, just try whatever is accessible to you. And, you know, some things are uh, cheaper than others. There were times I had money and there's times I didn't. So I just did whatever I had access to. Um, right. Like EFT is cheap. It's at home. You can learn to do it. You do it at home. Um, (laughs) That's called, sorry, that's the emotional freedom technique. Yes. Um, And you can just look up YouTube videos truly and learn how to do it. Uh, And then there's, I don't, um, EMDR, you know, there's a great app you can use. (laughs) Yes. I use that. Yeah. $5. Um, You can learn how to do that, versions of that on yourself also. You can even learn how to do versions of somatic experiencing on your own. Yep. So definitely. And and then other things like um, yoga really helped, you know, Mm. just moving my body and being in a place where I couldn't work on other things for an hour, you know, hour and 15 minutes. So it was kind of a forced quiet time in my week. And, um, you know, there can be classes you find for pretty cheap or to, you know, do it at home. So unfortunately, a a lot of um, practices do cost money, but there are ones that are accessible. And the thing is, is the ones I paid money for aren't necessarily um, more effective. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things... I really want to say is, yeah, first of all, for me, getting Lyme disease was was like my fast track to empathy. Like I learned so much about being a human being, right, and uh, struggle and trauma and suffering. I learned a lot about suffering. And the amount of empathy I have for other humans and also just believing people. Like that was before Lyme, I really was skeptical of everyone and what they told me their experience was in life. (laughs) So I I get that. Like, you know, a lot of times these horrid experiences bring us to empathy and compassion and a deeper connection to the human experience and our fellows around us. And that's a beautiful gift. It really, really is. 
And I just want to say, because we're talking a lot about how good you were at at, um, (laughs) at sort of detaching and being present and like not inserting your will to help, I just want to say that you guys, Jason showed up in profound ways. Like I did a fundraiser and the way you showed up for that fundraiser and like sharing it with your people and posting about it and and donating and, you know, the way – and you like gifted me a computer and you showed up for mm-hmm. doctor's appointments and you FaceTimed with me when I was in Indonesia. And I mean, I think the, the list goes on, but you were – you were very much there for me. Um, and what yeah. was remarkable for me when you shared that is if you asked me to list those things two minutes ago, I wouldn't have remembered any of it. Mm. That I'm not attached to – in the past it was. It was what can I do to get more points with a person? That was a big reason why I helped. And with those things, I actually, I remember, yeah, I, mean, I remember the doctor appointment thing earlier as we were talking, but in general, I don't, I didn't remember those things until you mentioned them because um, when I was helping you over the last couple of years compared to, I mean, I had a tally sheet of points, you know, 12 years ago of like, oh, okay, I said this cool thing to her. I said this thing that's going to. Because I want you to like me so much. Mm-hmm. And part of my growing up was to like myself enough that I don't need other people to like me. So I don't have to do that point system. And so when I helped you, it was just the next thing to do in that moment. You know, it was the, uh, you know, I bought a new computer. I had another one. I saw yours was crashing all the time. Do you want a computer? Mm-hmm. When I gave that to you, I, I honestly didn't expect anything back and um, and forgot about it. Right. And so that type of – that's I think that's the other beauty of attachment is – that's the beauty of detachment is that I don't have to keep score. Right. And it frees me up just to be in the moment, to love people in a way that I haven't been able to love before. And it's, it's a love that is, um, much more present based. I mean, when I, I mean, my heart just feels like it'll explode when I spend time with you because it's this unfiltered, I don't have to, oh, it's such a freedom to, um, not try to impress you, to not try to score points with you, to not try to look good. And just be there. I mean, it's, it's it's a totally different way of loving than than when I met you. Yeah, just be, just be. Yeah. yeah, Glennon Doyle, who I was talking to you about before the episode started, says this great thing where she's like, "Friendship is just two people not being God together." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and it's just a two people being like, I don't know, um, and you know that's really the experience of being your friend and that was the experience of being your friend with uh Lyme disease you really you really didn't have a solution because you hadn't been through it so you weren't throwing solutions at me you were just like what do you need now i'm here cool like <laughs> what do you need now and then you just listen and um no you actually didn't you wouldn't ask that often but you'd like listen to me and you'd be like is there something i can do mm-hmm. um or let's just watch a movie or let's you know wh- whatever that moment did i think a key part in what i've learned with my experiences with you and with eva is at times it's really important just to treat my friends as a friend and not to treat them as a patient mm. and so that means hanging out in whatever capacity possible in a way that is normal. And and that's something I remember Eva asking me on the way to some of her surgeries. Uh, I said, well, what do you need? And she said, just make dumb jokes. You know, uh, dark humor is fine. Um, You know, just act like we're just driving into the city on any normal day. Mm. 
And so I stepped into that role and, and we did that. And other people who were there for surgeries could play a different role. Her husband could play a different role. Another friend could play a different role. But that's what she wanted for me is that I could just act normal. I didn't have to act like she was about to have brain surgery or she was about to have heart surgery. Right. Right. And, and the ability to do that has, has been helpful because I think it's so humanizing. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, it really, really is. Mm, so much good stuff. So if a friend if a friend is listening right now to friend to a <clears throat> to a chronically ill person, what what would you say to them? And they're just like, I don't know how to do this. Just what came up before of uh, just sit with him and it's okay not to know. Yeah. It's as simple as that. I mean, there's something so powerful just sitting with someone just so they know they're not alone. Because when the advice comes up and the questions come up and it becomes about the helper, you know, it becomes about the helper's needs. You know, am I helping in a good enough way? You know, am I doing a good job? Mm-hmm. That type of pressure on someone who's sick, um, it seems to be really destructive. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you just sit with someone and let them bring up what they need, which may not be anything. And that's not to not take their sickness personally. You know, that if they, call someone else for a specific task and not you, it doesn't matter. You know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's, it's not, um, their sickness is not about you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more that I take care of myself, the less I need someone else to need me, you know, in a particular situation for me to have esteem. Um, so just sitting with someone is painful and awkward or, restless as it can be just try it mm-hmm. I love that and you know as a as someone who was who was the sick person like I um oftentimes the person struggling with a diagnosis is is on it like they are looking for solutions and thinking about how to get well and thinking about their options all of the damn time <laughs> yeah so, like, we don't need somebody to come in and try to fix us and make us different than we are. Like, a lot of the time, what we need is somebody to say, cool, so you're really struggling and I absolutely accept you like that and I'm going to sit here with you in the darkness until you're done struggling. Like, mm-hmm. and if you need something in the meantime, for sure, let me know. <laughs> yep. Another simple question that I've – that you've heard me say, um, is how are you feeling right now? Mm-hmm. And it's just something simple. There's no advice in it. There's no, um, suggestion. It's, and it's very present tense. It's profound. But, it's profound yeah, because and, we get asked, how are you doing all of the fucking time? How do you right. feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? And it really, for chronically ill people, like it changes every hour. Yep. It changes every day. So it is asking that question is acknowledging that, you know, that there is a present tense answer to that, that it's not like an overall answer. Right. Which can be overwhelming to answer, I'd imagine. Super overwhelming. Yes. But in the moment, it may be, I have a headache. I'm really tired. I don't feel like walking, period. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Mm, so beautiful. Is there anything you want to leave people with? I can't think of anything else. Okay. Um, how can people find you? Um, my artwork, um, they could go to Instagram, Jason J. Snell, um, and things that have to do with my own healing. I've done a number of essays on Medium. And on there, you can uh, just do a search, Jason J. Snell. Uh, it's just the letter J, Snell. And that um, goes into detail on some of the healing work I've done. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jason, for being you and for doing the work you've done on yourself because it has such a profound effect on the people around you. I'm happy to hear that. 
I love you. Um, and listeners, I love you too. Um, and I will see you in a couple of weeks. Pass this on, please, this episode to your people that you feel like need to maybe understand a little bit deeper. Pass it on to anyone who could use it. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Healing Out Loud. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Find me at Jackie on Instagram, my favorite social media platform, and follow me at JackieShay.com if you want to stay in touch. You can also write to me through JackieShay.com if you're interested in working with me as your trusted wellness companion. I'm always happy to hear from you with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can also join the Healing Out Loud with Jackie Shea Facebook group. Have an amazing week, you kick-ass humans. I hope you're able to implement what you learned this week, and I can't wait to share more. Bye.